You are listening to On Resistance Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM. My name is Jay. We air every Friday at 7.30 p.m. except for the first Friday of the month. Our past shows can be found on www.soundcloud.com slash on resistance. Today we will be discussing one year since 45's inauguration, how policies and movements continue to shift, where we were a year ago, and where we are now. Hi everyone, it's Bobby. We've just come back from a long break, so thanks for joining us again. You know, 2017 doesn't feel like it was as big as a whirlwind as like 2016 was because like the buildup of the fear of what Trump's presidency would be just seemed like so scary and like intense. Um, I think a year ago, I don't know, I feel like I was frustrated but still more hopeful that there was going to be like a resistance it was cool to see that there was like a lot of stuff happening from the time of the election to like before his inauguration i guess now seeing kind of like the results of everything it just seems like i don't know like resistance trademark like um if that makes sense using words like resistance and movements and stuff it just feels all very foreign right now and there was a lot of like white domination in this year's, at least face of movements. And so kind of figuring out like what it is in relation to me is something I'm still trying to figure out, I guess. Yeah, initially after the, I think we called it doomsday last year, <laughs> the, <laughs> the doomsday election, there was a, a brief moment where people were, you know, hashtag not my president. And there was a shift where the, it turned into hashtag no more presidents. And I felt as though there was going to be a little bit more of back and forth like that, where people would talk about how the need to organize against this figurehead, this capitalist figurehead that is now in the presidency, and that we would be able to quickly like that deepen it to become more like no more presidents to become more structural. And that there be maybe an opportunity to look at the structure and the nation and the nation state and the government as a source of harm and not just the individual positioned to, I mean, you, I guess you could call it, lead it, run it. And then very quickly that started to shift. There was a lot of immediate organizing that was sparked, but it very quickly became about the individual focus on the figurehead, not necessarily the position or the office or the structure or the fact that like this person, 45, inherited all of these pre-existing structures, inherited the military industrial complex, inherited the police terror, state control, systematic enforcement of racism complex. And then we had like mass marches and the mass marches were very like oh let's come together and feel good about coming together without like what can we collectively do together what can we affect or disrupt or create and instead it became about just really people digging in their heels about the need to focus on policy and representatives and almost immediately, a lot of like smaller elections that happened like really quickly after it. So it was very electoral. It was like, oh, why aren't more people voting? And, you know, the women's march that happened was very about advocating policies, legislation and voting and kind of reaffirming the hierarchy and, and kind of just saying, oh, we have the wrong person in the hierarchy as opposed to looking at the hierarchy itself. It's been kind of disappointing. And I think that with large scale disappointment, 
for example, 45's election, resistance can come out of that, but also kind of digging into the established legal hierarchy and process can also come of that, and it kind of tended to go more towards that way. The resistance that has taken form has been more preparedness and alternatives than confrontation and contrast to the political process that exists. So a lot of people have been like, oh, how do we do rapid response and direct response? Or how do we, you know, playing up like the fact that people need to crowdfund for themselves, which is a skill and tactic that people have been honing for the last, as the internet has risen. That's more on the interpersonal and and how people are organizing themselves, which is great. But when it comes to the public and like what's legitimized and what's given credibility, it's still these celebrity activists and representatives and senators and people from the hierarchy that are like, oh, we just need better policy. And I think it's so much deeper than that. And I wish we could just get deeper than that. Like I see administration policy shifts as them waging like attacks. And they keep waging all these attacks. And if you're just going to focus on each individual policy instead of like the whole system that allows for this to be the way that we like coexist with each other, then like we're constantly just going to be like chasing like whatever attacks are just being like thrown at that second. As someone who doesn't care about the state or reform, but then you see policies that are happening that are affecting people like right there, like in your immediate life, people who, you know, lives change with like a signing of a bill or with like a tweet and Trump's presidency I don't really care for her but it reminds me a lot about like the shock doctrine because like you're like anticipating and waiting every time he like tweets like oh god like especially that time when it was oh you know he had just done like the Muslim ban and like oh doc is on the table now and it was like this fear and it's like you're talking about people's lives like you know people were like their permit was about to expire or wondering like am I gonna get you know even though that fear already existed it's like it keeps you on a constant like what new policy is he gonna do now um, or the administration gonna do you know Steve Bannon leaving and now there's like a rift between them like it's very interesting because it's like yeah you know Steve Bannon like he went in and he got out and he got a lot of stuff that he wanted he got the repeal of DACA and he got this Muslim ban that's it's being called and a lot of the issues are important to the alt-right like you know for people who are for the Democrats Aren't you frustrated and, like, tired of them? Because, like, look at so much of what the right did in a year. This whole tax cut for the rich. It's the most major changes to taxes since Reagan. So that means when Democrats were in office and they had the opportunity to change taxes to benefit poor people when they were in administration, they have it. So it's like, so, you know, look at how much, like, the right has been able to do and look how little the Democrats and, like, the, quote, left have been able to do. Then, like, don't you start to look at it and see, like, it's a scheme? It's just, like, a game where where they're pretending not to be for these policies? What was the most, there was the most recent election. Was it Roy Moore? Oh, yeah. that was um, Alabama. Alabama. Okay, Roy Moore was, was running and was defeated. And it just became super clear to me. There is nothing like the Democrats are a capitalist warmongering party. The main parties in this capitalist economy are going to be towing that line. And anybody to compete in that system is going to have to tow that line. But it just became super clear that the party system is aware that they don't actually have to offer any alternatives or solutions because the fear of getting well, because I think systematic racism is, is learned and constant, but getting overt open racists elected, the fear of that is going to bring people out to vote against that person. So people aren't being offered any actual solutions from these parties. There is nobody out there saying, we care about poverty, except for 
resistance. Let's resist poverty. Let's resist capitalism, a system that purposefully creates poverty to have expendable workforces and treats people as exploitable subjects. There's nothing being offered by these political institutions for people. The only thing are like people organizing for themselves because they're going to be affected. And then outside organizations or representatives come in and co-opt their platform and then use it to get themselves elected. So Okay, if you want a great electoral machine, then you got that. The representative democracy, like electing people, funding elections, like the issue is that that doesn't do anything to help people that are experiencing intersecting oppression or players that continue to be affirmed and funded. And the main source of the conversation is is to continue that process. And I do think we've said this a lot, but yeah, we're constantly playing defense with these policies. And it's like at this point now, it's not just defense, it's triage. Like we're running to the side of the wound and trying to prevent it from being worse. Meanwhile, the people creating the wounds continue to be elected and affirmed in this political hierarchy. If we look at, okay, what has happened in a year, the same institutions that we see as sources of harm are now being affirmed by liberals. So liberals hate 45 so much that they're promoting the FBI and singing the praises of historically racist institutions like the FBI. When you have a foil and a figurehead like 45 in office that allows you to just focus on that person's personality or tweets or rather than looking at the structure that exists that is giving him the power to pass policy after policy that is specifically targeting already resource-deprived, displaced communities. What happens is you move further and further towards that because then what you're looking at as a contrast to that is actually not that good to begin with, but it's not as bad as that. And so we're constantly in this discourse of like liberals affirming things that are quote-unquote not as bad as 45, even though the FBI is as bad as 45. The FBI was born before 45. (laughs) It was systematically engineered to prevent and target and attack specifically black liberation. So what is being affirmed in the fight against 45 is a huge concern to me because it just continuously moves the discourse. You could say it moves moves it to the right. It moves it up into the right, I would say. We're constantly moving towards authoritarianism and we're not looking at left or liberal authoritarianism because people are looking at right 45 authoritarianism. Yeah, the policies are, are trash, obviously. Like any policy that comes out of 45's presidency is going to be horrible. For example, he asserted the quote unquote capital of the state of Israel, which basically just signaled the Western stamp on colonialism in the region to continue greenlighting heightened genocide of the Palestinian people. And then the policies of withdrawing the temporary protective status of Haitians, Nicaraguans, and most recently Salvadorians, when we're not acknowledging that the U.S. state, the nation state, is what causes mass displacement. I go back to how do we prepare when we know the state is going to take these actions of harm against people, and how do we prepare in a way that doesn't mean we're actually trying to just fix the state every time. And it's becoming increasingly hard to even, like, even just doing the show, you know, it's gotten a lot more dangerous this year. And Jeff Sessions is, you know, no joke. I don't know. I feel like if I'm rooting for anyone in that administration to leave, it's him on his inauguration, like, and the changing of the website. And they, like, put up that police state thing and, like, how they're going to bring back law and order. When we look at the response of what's happened with J20, the group that was kettled, and who have been getting prosecuted, the first six got not guilty, and there's still like hundreds of more people who are gonna who are awaiting trial. 
you know, and they're facing like 60 plus years. First of all, like the case itself, they're trying to criminalize basically organizing, you know, and like in some element, like radical organizing has always been criminalized, but like to put in the context of like conspiracy, because they're not even being able to say like, oh, we know who broke this window. We know who did this. Like, no, they're just saying the fact that you went to this march, you consented knowing that a riot would happen. There's so much loopholes in that argument that like it's kind of ridiculous and it's good that the jury saw that. But like that doesn't say what's going to happen for the other juries, you know really going at like the black block and like tying black block to mean antifa they're establishing the legal definitions of black block um or at least attempting to and like who gets to be a journalist one and like how journalists can report at actions there is this shift because prosecution is terrifying period and is part of a systematic mass incarceration model where it just enforces police discretion. If police choose to charge you, the prosecutor is pretty much automatically going to enforce those charges. And it doesn't matter that the cops lie or that they're racist or that they're ableist or that their ego is ridiculous and they will criminalize you for looking at them the wrong way. Clearly, like a lot of these activist mass rallies are very symbolic, organized, permitted, working with the cops, gathering to to generate money for some established representative. But the ones that don't fall under those categories that are actually about creating disruption and resistance and collective action and the people coming together and realizing that we have the capacity to strike and target spaces and show visibly what we won't tolerate and what we want are being hyper-criminalized and have been. But yeah, this mask, this idea that you can just charge 200 people with conspiracy to riot and multiple felony counts and facing, was it like up to 100 years? Because they've dropped several of the felonies, now it's like 60 plus. Oh, okay. So 60 you plus know, years. <laughs> like... And that's what liberals would call progress. Yeah. And so seeing that happen, right, and them trying to take this collective punishment model Um, which law enforcement uses constantly, which is a war tactic. And then also this happened in uh, what people call the Battle of Berkeley, where neo-right Nazi nationalists, I'm just going to call them nationalists because nationalism is super racist, but it's also a broad spectrum of ideology subscribed to nationalism. The police there wanted to charge the people that they arrested with conspiracy as well. But in that situation, I think the prosecutor didn't pick them up. An example of another move by law enforcement to try to mass criminalize people for showing up and just being present at the site of a conflict. Now, maybe progressive pacifist liberals will say oh we should just not have conflict but that's not reality the reality is that we are situated in a conflict and in a hierarchy um, and that there are visible ruptures that occur and some of these situations like j20 and battle of berkeley and these uprisings after these racist police executions really give people an outlet to move beyond these established political mechanisms that have been created to control people to really collectively come together and decide and, and create impact. There is a shift to hypercriminalize. For example, DHS, what we did see in the last year was this weird, I never in my life would have thought that Antifa would become like this mainstream thing talked about <laughs> on CNN and Fox and all that. And there's a lot of misconceptions on 
what it is, who does it, why it's done, or the black block, this tactic of being an all black and anonymous and being able to come together in a group for a specific purpose. Some vague examples are shutting down the port to affect capital to achieve a goal. Through popularization, it becomes distorted, it loses its meaning, it becomes something else, it becomes a talking point for talking heads on the news. To harp on and on about this so-called law and order that kills so many people every day, DHS did come out, Department of Homeland Security, and some of these fusion centers, which are engaged in spying, illegal spying on, on civilians, on people everywhere. They came out with some bulletins about Antifa and um, so-called anarchists. And if we do popularize any form of resistance, those are the agencies that are there to immediately control the narrative from a law enforcement perspective, in addition to the other agencies that exist, like the mainstream media, who also participate in criminalization. The stakes are really high and they continue to get higher. And I think if people maybe looked at it as the state, the government and its institutions are not there to help, they are there to establish and maintain control at whatever cost with whatever collateral. And for us to look at that that kind of a scenario, this kind of power structure and think that we can change its direction or its purpose or try to make it work for some vague, quote unquote, the people when really this is a class war, this is, you know, systematic racism and um, racial hierarchies that are enforced that we uh, enforce and live. I feel like we just have to look at the structures that are being used to organize us. Like someone said Reform is just maintenance work done on the state. And so do we want to do maintenance work for a violent, deadly state? Or is there, insert anything else here, really? When you were talking about the fugitive centers and the agencies also reminded me of how just the alt-right also were participating in assisting the state. There is like video evidence used against some of the defendants by Project Veritas, which is basically like a media entrapment agency, <laughs> you know, like they go around trying to entrap people on video. How strategic and just like, you know, how the 45 presidency really has like helped enable them to be able to really like successfully run their operations of like targeting and entrapping their enemies or who they see as their enemies. But yeah, just like the right is really able to really act as like an assist to the state to prosecute people. And the repression of J20 has been for like, you know, has been really strong. But like, it's also like, you know, they've gotten a lot of media attention. And there's been a lot of focus on this trial, a lot of, you know, New York Times talked about it, like all these like media that usually have been ignoring like people's arrest, you know, in other ways have been focusing on that. And I think that's a lot because of the class, the whiteness, and like because the journalist was arrested um, and because of like the sheer like ridiculousness of the charges just to go to focus like on the action itself. I think like even with the, the block or the alleged block, like the most effective direct action that happened on J20 was the person punching Richard Spencer. You know, that's like what people remember of that day. That was just like an international like, thing like that just that person directly just punching Richard Spencer and you know I feel like that kind of to me shifts like the direction to more just like direct action with like low-key and really taking security culture seriously because like 
people's cameras, footages, and phones and shit like that are being used as like reasons to like go after people. And so I feel like security culture really has to be taken more seriously now. Yeah, do stuff, but don't brag about it. Don't post about it on social media. The trend of there being a front line at a mass protest and here's the quote-unquote front line and then in front of the front line is the row of photographers <laughs> and that is just so unacceptable to me because it doesn't it's it it's like oh we need to document this no it doesn't you're not doing that you're sensationalizing it if you were documenting it you would be actually finding narratives of people participating about why they're participating and amplifying those but instead it's about spectatorship and sensationalism and criminalization that's why people say like no cameras that's why people don't really want don't trust white live streamers slash live streamers at some of these rallies uh, where people are trying to actually do stuff and affect actions. But yeah, I mean, I think being decentralized and working more in small affinity is possible, although it's just increasingly difficult in this mass surveillance state. I was doing research. There's a website called publicintelligence.net, and they publish a lot of the state authoritarian agency reports and documents for public use, printing, downloading, saving. Sometimes it's really beneficial to see to see the state analysis and how they are categorizing and viewing resistance. And then there was also the FBI bulletin on categorizing uh, people as black identity extremists. And there was nothing about white supremacist <laughs> extremism. There was no bulletins about violent right white nationalism. It just goes to show you that the state isn't afraid of white supremacist violence. The state was formed out of white supremacist violence. There was things listed in some of those bulletins like their main fear is a quote unquote retaliation against police for these systematic executions that are happening in the street. I think someone said within the first eight days of January, like 30 people have been killed by cops or something already in 2018. So, and not to say the solution is that we want the state to analyze or organize against white supremacist violence because I just think it's counter to the nature of the state, similar to the fact that incarcerating white supremacists doesn't stop white supremacy because the Aryan Brotherhood organizes predominantly in prisons. Just to look at the context of, again, why does the state exist and to what ends. And then the day after the inauguration was when they did the Women's March. I feel like they had an opportunity to denounce the police violence that happened the day before at the inauguration, and they didn't. So it's, like, really annoying now that, like, they've seen that it's more socially acceptable in the liberal world to be uh, supportive of J20. Then now they're starting to put out tweets like, oh, you know, this is unjust, and, like, we're in solidarity, when, like, they could have, like, totally used that platform and probably would have changed, like, prosecution's ability to even, like, charge them as much. I feel like this whole year has just been everyone riding the wave of the black resistance that has been happening the last couple of years. And like, that's kind of like whitewash. Like, now everyone's against white supremacy, but it's all just sort of like, it's like shallow. It's not really, it's all just, I mean, what's not performative? But like, Women's March did a tweet in solidarity of the like, why we wear black, which was trending on Sunday, the day of the Golden Globe, for like the Times Up Me Too movement that's going on in Hollywood and like solidarity, and I guess, in protest of like all of the sexual assaults and harassment that's been going on. They wore black, which I just thought was like, you know, like people are being charged for being arrested at a location and for 
wearing black. Like, that's the conspiracy. The fact that, like, you know, that contradiction wasn't really picked up or that, like, there was no, you know, and then so much people talk about press freedom, but no one talked about, like, the journalist who's being, like, charged for reporting at um, J20 and, like, that form of protest is allowed, right, because it doesn't do anything. And the state knows it doesn't do anything, and it's also, like, it's not really against, against the state. And so it's like when you protest against the state, when you protest against the administration, like the whole idea of having like a jury of your peers or having a fair trial is ridiculous. If I'm protesting the room I'm being held in to decide whether or not I'm guilty or not. Like how could this really be considered unbiased? It's just like the hypocrisies and like the double standards are really highlighted and like, you know, everyone's an activist now and like everyone's part of the resistance. Everything's a revolution. Everything's radical, blah, blah. And, it's, and the, you know, I've lost the energy to fight for these words. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't be fought for. I don't know. I really don't know right now. Talking more about the Me Too movement, it's kind of like the neo-suffrage movement. It's like white cis women, mostly in a like high class. Race and class affects, you know, different people and who's being heard and like why we're paying attention and like who gets the Vanity Fair cover and like whose sexual assault is like a punchline. It's it's very obvious and it's just like so gross too because there's like so much of white women like really like patting themselves on the back you know and and you know there's people who are like not white who have stories about how that white woman didn't respect their agency or you know harassed them in some way or were like racist to them and there's uh, that's like this whole year of quote-unquote resistance has been gross yeah i feel like we used to say co-optation kills the movement or is a death to the movement i think we did a panel talk that titled that. But now I'm thinking co-optation is the movement. Now. <laughs> now the movement is all about co-optation. Like resistance is now posturing. That's what it is. And it's really disappointing and it's constant. And especially this like hyper recognition of celebrity activism. Because I feel like celebrities have been a kind of a class on their own in terms of what they've done with their wealth. Like we've seen a lot of saviorism from celebrities in the past and philanthropy focus, like foundation focus. More recently, we've kind of seen with the Women's March and with the Me Too, kind of like celebrity activism, uh, celebrities that are collectivizing and kind of coming together while ignoring that they're getting the ideas and their organizing methods. Especially with Me Too, technically started by Tarana Burke, who is a black woman. And then even with the Women's March, too, like the Women's March, when it was being organized initially, was being called out because there was a Millions Women's March um, in 1997 that was black women led and organized. Just the same stuff of like people planning things and calling it new and calling it resistance and like ignoring like legacies of practice and organizing and resistance that have happened, kind of erasing them and then rebranding it. It's very frustrating, and I'm sure we will continue to discuss it as there's another Women's March coming up. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll have critique and analysis, and hopefully a deepening process will emerge from that as well. This has been On Resistance Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM. If you'd like to catch our past shows, find us on soundcloud.com slash on-resistance. Thanks for listening. Thanks.